Hi, it's another episode of Mixtape. I'm Joel. Who I'm do I Elon. got with me? Who are you? <laughs> I'm Elon. And I'm John. Hi. Hi, guys. So, let's have a little discussion here. What defines disco in your mind? Like, what are the, the whether it's the instru- instrumentation or the vibe, like, what was disco to you? Rhythm, for sure. Rhythm. Rhythm. Okay, but rhythm you have in R&B. What made disco disco? Hmm. Well, disco was usually, it was celebrational, and you could you could lose your inhibitions to it. You could dance. It was celebration. It was definitely a celebration music. Okay. The disco was a lifestyle. Not only the music, but everything that went along with it. To John's point of losing yourself in the music. And An that attitude. Yes. And as it started to change, and, as, and people thought of disco dying why didn't it carry on why did it feel like an era versus it felt there was a demarcation well you right? know literally what was it wrigley state was it wrigley Field? no it was Comi- comiskey park yes in uh in chicago yeah they were burn your disco albums you know it, the story right yes yeah, so, but what, that's what i'm saying what, what was that right that was a backlash. Like, it was basically, I mean, not to get all political on everybody, but, like, heteronormative, you know, America was sick of all this, you know, this brown people and gay people music being popular, and so it was a backlash against that. Gotcha. Okay. So, last week in the Duran Duran episode, we talked about this new romantics era and how that was just, like, this two-year moment. And there was this two-year moment after disco, right? So there's disco, there's this post-disco era, and that's Nona Hendrix and Cheryl Lynn got to be real, and mm-hmm. Shannon let the music play. and Even it, late, late Sylvester and the Weather yeah, Girls and all that. All of that, right? And then very quickly that trans, or that mutates into what becomes more traditional 80s music fodder. The heavy synth stuff, we're into the era of AIDS and, you know, the Cold War. And right. and the music is really reflective of that, where you see New Order and and the Smiths and some of these other bands, I think, um, that, that you really think of with the 80s. Is that right, a right. fair assessment? Yes, I'm following you, yeah. Okay, cool. So in that time, wh- what do you think like let the music play or those songs represented in that transition. Well, I think that, you know, it's fine listening to the Madonna album and Mm -hmm. kind of just getting sonically what was going on with it. Two songs that popped into my head. One was M. Tume's Juicy Fruit. Feels Mm -hmm. a lot, you know, Juicy Fruit. You can look (laughs) me everywhere. That reminds me of um, like Physical Attraction. You know, right. or, or some of those grooves that were really very sexy and um, everybody and all that. Then you've got songs like, um, believe it or not, I was listening to uh, Diana Ross's Pieces of Ice, you know, mm. which came out around the same time. And Pieces of Ice also has that same kind of slinky sound. And I, to answer your question, I think it was the technology that was happening in the 80s where you didn't have as many session musicians or bands. like I mean, my God, Earth, Wind & Fire had like a brass section. Meanwhile, I think you had people making music with synthesizers in the studio. And I think the sound and the texture you're talking about, especially with Patrice Russian, it was getting much tighter and and, and, and more R&B and not quite as big and flamboyant. You saw that too? Go ahead. The the Lin-1 drum machine kind of changed the game. 
The mm-hmm. limb one drum And I would also say, you saw that not just in pop music, but if you go back and watch a movie in the 80s, like Ruthless People or any of those like touchstone films, they eschewed the orchestra for these very synthy soundtracks. It's kind of funny. It feels very dated now. Uh, you know, j- d- very quick digression. I would urge everyone to check out John Carpenter's music. You can find it on Apple Music or I guess probably Spotify. Um, John Carpenter did some really cool synth music to accompany his films. Hmm. Back to you. Cool. So that all... Fascinating, John. Um, <laughs> so that all leads... The question that is being prompted, and you referenced her. Madonna's first album came out in that little window of post-disco and before the 80s sound really kicked in. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's episode of... Mixtape. Let's hit it. Perfect. Awesome. How are we tracking for time? we we got plenty of time. So, one of the... The interesting things when studying about the uh, studying up on the album and listening to it is it does it it does feel like it comes from what was going on in the clubs then. Um, I wasn't old enough to go to the club, so I have no idea. But she records everybody, and it's as a standalone single. I'm losing weight. Yeah, I've been watching you. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some gr- there's great stories. I'll I'll post on our, our website. Rolling Stone did an oral history of this album, which oh. I use as part of my research, and oddly conflicted with the Wikipedia thing. But it was mm-hmm. all the real people in involved, and um, the the A and R guy at Sire Records, Sire Records, right? Was, of course, Madonna yeah. was on for uh, for many years and, and launched her career. She had this single, it was her, and she wrote all of it, and she didn't have a super producer with her. It was everybody. And uh, Michael says that he was up in the VIP section with the guys from Wham, who hadn't broken yet, and they were trying to, like, launch their careers. And he saw this woman march up to the DJ and insist that he play it. And he'd heard that she was looking for a record deal, and it was this Madonna character, and he just was like, the electricity around her, even though she wasn't famous or any of that. And he marched down and went and talked to her um, and then got her signed on uh, Seymour Stein, who was in the hospital, signed her from his hospital bed, which is, you know, the lore that many people who are Madonna fans all know about. It's so funny because I heard from friends of mine, I mean, Madonna is such a generational, you know, 
performer, I feel like. And friends of mine who are maybe 10 years older, um, they tell similar stories about how they would be in some little gay bar. And then here's this girl who, like, you know, was full of all this piss and vinegar, and she would lip sync to these songs. They didn't even know who she was. And then later it's like, oh, my God. That was Madonna. Exactly. Yeah, the other weird thing I saw with uh, in looking at this is that she like I always think of Madonna now as like or at, in her heyday, I would say just like on the leading edge of both fashion and trying to like the producer who is about to break. And mm-hmm. she in this era feels really bohemian. And they, they talked about the rags she would wear, those weird bracelets and all of that. Right. And she lived this bohemian lifestyle that people were like, who is this freak show? And mm-hmm. that's how a lot of the interviews I've looked at talked about. And it, it's so funny to me because when you saw all of the, those, you know, the plastic bracelets and all of that, it felt like how her career went. Like this is, the cutting edge of something. And but you know what? Especially to what you're saying, exactly. Just like her career went, she had a friend named Marisol who was a stylist in New York, mm-hmm. and that's where a lot of her style decisions were informed by her back then. Hmm. Um, and and I think that's the interesting thing about Madonna's career is that she's always been super savvy about knowing who to listen to and from whom to get advice. But um, I, I must say her debut album is a joy to talk about because I remember um, I, I, I wasn't I wasn't sharp enough to have heard everybody. I can't say that I followed Madonna from everybody. But then the second single, which was Burning Up, mm-hmm. I saw the video on MTV. Burning Up, such a great song. And it blew the video blew my mind. Like her in that boat on the water, and then here she's like in the middle of the road, writhing around, and that car. Um, and if you haven't seen the video, you need to see it. But anyway, I ran out to Record Bar which was our local record chain, and I bought the album, and that's where my love started. Hmm. Wow. So let's play a little bit of Burning Up. Because one of the reasons that we talked about wanting to do this episode was a lot of the younger generation think that um, Like a Virgin was the first album and it wasn't. That was the second album. But um, I remember they all kind of came together around the same time. And to your point, she was a cultural phenomenon. I don't know how it was for you guys where you grew up, but I remember being in third or fourth grade and when when she made it big, like... I'm talking like 10, 15 girls dressing, trying to dress up exactly like Madonna in elementary school. I can't even imagine what was going on in like high school and stuff. Yeah. I, I, I still to this day, I've never seen any pop artist 
become that much of a cultural phenomenon as Madonna did around this time. Right. Well, f- for our audience, I'm going to be contrarian. And just for anybody who, who may be, just full disclosure, I was a huge Madonna fan for years and years, and um, I'm, I'm not a fan anymore. Um, but that doesn't prevent me from looking back at her music and saying that the first, especially the album, if we're going to focus on the first album, it holds up. And interestingly, all music guide, you know, it, it describes the album as irresistible. And I love that word in reference to the album. I think it is irresistible. The, yeah. the, 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 the songwriting is there. The, the production is there. Everything about it is, is enjoyable to listen to. Yeah, I and I, th- that's sort of what I wanted to unpack in part of as part of this episode. To go back to Elon's point, part of the reason you got that wallop was that it sold five million copies in the United States, ten million total. But there was a crescendo. The first single was more of a club hit. The second one didn't do well. The third was Holiday, which peaked at sixteen. Then crazy, right? uh, borderline <laughs> in the U.S. and then Lucky Star. Oh, I think internationally it went Lucky Star and then Borderline. So as this thing sort of ramps up, she's making her second album and then very quickly like a virgin drops. Going back to what you said, John, though, here's the interesting thing. At the time, it was reviewed as okay. But if you look at all of the reviews of like influential pop albums of the 80s, it's listed in the top 100. And I find it absolutely fascinating because she didn't work with big producers. Mm-hmm. I mean, Reggie Lucas kind of was at the time. She and she wasn't happy have, with what he did, so she brought in Jelly Bean, Jelly Bean to right? fix it up. You know, and Yeah, and, so, and, and she had this... Uh, she had... Uh, written the songs without anyone else, and I thought, and and so I, when you go back and look at this, all of a sudden it starts to make sense. And, you have this. Go ahead. Well, I think like without overstating it, but it was kind of a brave decision of hers. First album, she's working mm-hmm. with this producer, and she doesn't like what she's hearing, so she's going to get somebody to kind of see the vision that she has for this first album. Well, she there was a, a great um, quote from Jelly Bean, and he said. Yeah, she could be a real bitch. But when you were <laughs> I saw but, that quote. Yeah, yeah, but when you were on a creative groove together, it really worked. And um I'm yeah. sure that 23-year-old, she was 23 at the time, right? Yeah. I'm sure that 23-year-old Madonna was really amazing in the studio to work with her. I'm mm. sure she was. So so normally an album comes out and a first album and it's not cohesive. You get a little bit of these days it would be what? Max Martin and then you get the guy from the, um, like, what's that band called? Um, you know, there's like a, f- a few big Right, but your point in the album is so, co- it's tight. I it's, mean, every single song fits together. And right. um, I would argue, I think there's only one song on there that could even maybe be filler, and that would Which be one? I Know It. Everyone says that, and I like that one better than Think wow. of Me. Yeah. Wow, I like Think that. of Me makes me so happy. I love that oh, song. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so, I, so I think part of that was because she had her four songs. She was trotting them around. The A&R guys at Sire then got them produced and hooked her up with Reggie Lucas. Mm-hmm. And, and I think because it was like everybody was the first, the first single, and then the DJ Mark came and produced that and sort of made mm-hmm. something of it. And then they realized, okay, let's give her some more money and we'll ha- make four more songs, right? So they do that and they bring in Reggie. No one in LA where Warner exists is even paying attention because they're like, who, a, 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 a one 
word pop star, how original, groundbreaking, mm-hmm. right, right? Right. And they're just and she's dressed like a ragamuffin, and no one's paying attention. So she's doing her own thing. These four songs come together, and I think it was like physical attraction. Mm-hmm. It was think of me. Uh, Lucky Star was one of those. Come on. She's got these four songs as the next wave. They give her something like 10 grand a song to make them, right? She works with Reggie. He's worked with Patrice Russian and some Mm -hmm. of the people we've talked about. And then he throws in Borderline and one other song. What was that? Which he wrote. Maybe it was just Borderline. And we should play a little bit of Borderline, right? We got to play a little Borderline. (laughs) Borderline's such a greatly written song. Let's play it. All right, cool. Let's play a little bit of that. relationship really did a number on that person. See, I, I'm having fun being the contrarian in this conversation because Borderline is the one song that even to this day, I just can't get into. No, really? Even John, what's wrong with yeah, you, Yeah, it's the one song. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a Burning Up fan. Um, physical Attraction, I think, is, is oh, the song is so sexy and good. Yes. Think of Me is really good. Um, I, every, Lucky Star is astounding. I mean, the album mm-hmm. is... It, uh, to use a word I said earlier, it's a joy to listen to the album, and it's yeah. it, it holds together. And what's so interesting to me is that it it doesn't sound like a period piece. It's clearly of its time, but it because it, it has a drum machine that you yeah. was talking about. Right? Yeah, and and the thing is, like going back to a point you made earlier, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. Like I loved Madonna. And I'm not that big a fan anymore of like the newer stuff. I can appreciate all of it. I gotta go. I'm, I'm, well, <laughs> we had talked about this when we did the bedtime story review, and there was a certain point where when you would hear a Madonna song, you knew it was a Madonna song. And 
in, in my eyes or to my ear, like there was no one else that could perform those songs. As she went on further in her career, I think instead of setting a lot of the trends, she was just kind of trying to be part of the With hard, hard Candy, she started chasing instead of leading. Well, lest you forget, Malcolm McLaren had a song called Deep in Vogue that came out a long time before her Vogue came out. So she didn't, yeah, she... But no one, you couldn't ask the average person on the street that. She was good at taking Well, it was her job. Her job is to be paying attention to everything. And that's what has made her so good at what she does is because she's always watching. And she picks it up before most people notice it. Which is what she did, which Vogue falls under that, even if what you're saying is true. But Mm -hmm. to follow, to be working with, you know, some of these big producers like, um, what's his name? Who did like Hard Candy? Oh, Pharrell. Pharrell and, and yeah. the Miami guy. What's his name? The Miami guy. He does all of JT's stuff. Oh, um, oh, why'd you do yeah. this to me? No, I know. Here we're gonna be the Miami, the Miami Timberland. Missy Elliott, Missy Elliott's guy. Yeah, well, Timberland. Timberland. Yeah, yeah, but he's not from Miami. He's from Virginia. He records a lot of. Them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the whole the the point that I wanted to finish and make was that. With this album and, and, and Like a Virgin, she kind of opened, she, she set the trends in pop music, which would kind of continue throughout the decade, especially for female performers, I felt. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think the whole thing is, regardless of how you feel about her, and no matter how old you are, whether you lived through it the first time, you definitely should reassess that album. Yeah. I think it's. I think it's. It holds up. It's an incredible album. It, and the interesting thing is, our first and most popular uh, podcast was we reviewed Bedtime Story, and that for that podcast, we I talked about how I everyone talks about Ray of Light as this epiphany moment in her career, and how that was her like a spiritual album. And I actually, my whole premise was like Bedtime Story is actually that one because she's like out in the wilderness trying to figure out what the hell happened post-sex and all of that. <laughs> and so uh, as I approached this, I struggled a little bit because while that has a cohesive message and there's an arc to the album in a way that's really satisfying and surprising in retrospect because you're kind of like, you don't think of Bedtime Story as a good album, right? Or one of her best, rather. And this one, you're, it's a, you know it's a first album. You know they're just trying to like get some singles out of it so she can start to have some control. And yet when... You, and yeah, I don't think it, it's some sort of artist's uh, treatise or anything like that, but it's cohesive. It stands on its own. It's got holiday. And I, <laughs> I, and I also think the discussion that we had at the beginning about that bridge between disco and then what became the true 80s sound, this right. is that one album and probably <clears throat> the most popular one and certainly the only one by an icon because Shannon and some of the other ones, it was like one song and done. Right. Uh, that, that represents that time. And what you get in this album and you hear in, in songs like Borderline, which I know you don't like as much, is like the best part of Madonna is there's like the strength and vulnerability. Um, and I think as we sort of... St- get further and further from her career, that's part of where she's well, her the charisma. most successful. She has charisma, and I think right. that's what you're talking about, is her charisma comes through in that album and on the songs. Yeah. And, and I but like... But also the vulnerability. You hear it on, like, the, a borderline. No, and, and not even only in the music. Like, look at the album cover. Yeah. The vulnerability is in the, in the shot that they use for the, for the album cover. Yeah. So... So you hear that in some of her best stuff. 
I, I think the thing that everyone celebrates Madonna for ultimately is that she's this, everyone talks about that she's this, um, like from her level of energy to just like being a manifester, she just bulldozes forward, right? Mm-hmm. But some, but I think part of the reason she never had an acting career is because you have to show some of yourself or you have to, there's a vulnerability that needs to happen. And, and you don't see that in all of her work. And the stuff that you do see it in, it feels a little bit more elevated than the rest of it, even though it's all a stellar catalog for me. Well, I like what you said earlier, and I want to go back to it, that you know her contemporaries at the time were people as esoteric as Nona Hendrix, which mm-hmm. if, if, if our listeners are not familiar with her, she was a member of LaBelle with Patti LaBelle. And then she had a spinoff career that I would describe as a hybrid of the looks of Grace Jones with the sound of Janet Jackson. Ooh. <laughs> you nailed it. Should we play a little Nona? She okay, let's play uh, as well. Why, why, uh, why Should I Cry? I think that's okay. the best song. Contemporaries like Nona Hendrix and Patrice Russian, and I mean, Forget Me Nots, I think dovetails so nicely into the sound of what we're talking about. Regina with Baby Love. Oh, I thought <laughs> Regina was going to have her own career, and it was no like kidding. one and done. And by the way, that Regina album, should we play? Let's play a little Baby Love. Okay.
produced that. So it was actually Jelly Beans. He did Baby Love? Oh, Sidewalk Talk was. Oh, si- oh. we didn't talk about and we can play for people that I think will be interesting is there at the end everything is done and there's two songs that they're trying to figure out one is Holiday right Mm -hmm. and Holiday was taken from another band yes uh, and was recorded almost uh, as a ballad or much more evocative than Madonna's version and Madonna turned it into this whole other thing that sounds very different and then the other song was called Ain't No Big Deal. Let's play a clip of Holiday. Okay, let's play a clip of Holiday. Madonna was in the drummer in a band called The Breakfast Club with her boyfriend, Stephen Bray. Stephen Bray would be one of the producers who was heavily involved in producing uh, True Blue and Like a Prayer. But at this time, he had taken this song that was supposed to be on this album and he had promised it to someone else. This song, Ain't No Big Deal, which we'll play a second of. flip side of True Blue and at the time I thought it was really crappy but if you listen to it now <laughs> it really fits on the album hmm. are you familiar with it? I okay in my deep dive as you would put yes, it yes. Um, I read all of that as well that's one of the periods again I've had a very 
I've had a very troubled relationship with Madonna. And the True Blue album was one of the ones that I, I tapped out on. Um, but then I was... You don't like True Blue? I, I found it. I found it. No, not to my liking at the time. So I, But then I got back on board when she did Vogue. Bam! I was, I was back on board and, and a fan again. Have you gone back and listened to True Blue? It's been a long time. Give it a listen. And then the okay. next time we talk, we'll talk off air. Do you and just like tell it? Me what you, I love True Blue. Hmm. Hmm. I think True Blue is her most underrated album. Because a lot of people mm-hmm. don't really like it that much. And I'm not talking about, like, her later stuff. Okay, maybe some of that stuff is great and it's underrated because not as many people listen to it. I'm talking about peak Madonna from this yeah, album yeah, yeah, through, yeah. like, you know, 94, but, okay. 95. And the way that fits into this conversation, I'm going to argue, is that there's the Madonna that, that everyone knows and the debut album is the album that not only set up the stage for everything that came afterward, but it, it holds up in such a different way. Um, and I think that a lot of people can enjoy that debut album, even if you're not a Madonna fan. Right. Yeah. You, can, you can enjoy it. And I think that that's kind of a common thread with a lot of the albums that we discuss, um, is that there's a lot of stuff that's still to this day, even though, like you said, it's of its time, still holds up. Exactly. And this is one of those albums. Exactly. Amen. I agree. So wrapping up, uh, your take on this album or the era or whatever you want to say. That word that kept coming up when I was reading about it again is, is irresistible. It's mm-hmm. got, the songwriting is way better than it deserves to be. I mean, sure, we're not talking Joni Mitchell. We're not talking anything, you know, it's not Leonard Cohen, but it's, it's good pop music. And, and the production is tight and the album is cohesive and just no one named Madonna who no one's ever heard of deserves an album as good as this album was. Yeah, yeah. You love for you? There's a, it's a super interesting story how the album came together. Joel mentioned he's going to put up the oral history of it. I recommend people read it. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's such a good debut album. Um, you think of like really, really big artists and I always go back to Prince. Prince's debut album, I mean, it's... It's kind of, it's cool that he did all the instruments and all that stuff, but it's not that great, in my opinion. This is an awesome debut album. This is like a five-star debut album. Hmm. I would agree. I would say uh, it's it launched a career, and deservedly so. All right, so that's another episode of Mixing. <laughs> John, before we wrap up, how are you feeling to end? Do, need, do we need to hold your hand? Or John, John was great. I'm, I'm loving it. I, I've... I've think it's fun to talk about these frothy pop albums from the 80s in such a um, Highbrow, passionate, right? yeah, passionate, yes. lofty way. So. We haven't, like, yeah, I can't wait till we have, like, a drag, like, an argument. Like, <laughs> no, that album sucks. No, it doesn't. You're crazy. We've never actually had that. Well, I was afraid, I was afraid when I said that I didn't enjoy uh, Borderline the way you guys do. So. Oh, Borderline's such uh, a great song. Well, you're just wrong. Yeah, I think that's the <laughs> first time I disagreed with you, honestly. <laughs> All right, everyone. That's another episode of Mixtape. But look at this, John. Uh, True Blue. Look at Papa Don't Preach, Open Your Heart, Live to Tell, which is a beautiful song. True Blue, mm-hmm. La Isla Bonita. That's I, solid. I, I,